The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, adult themes, and interspecies romance. Saturday the 27th of November 2021. The Spring Series continues with the return of a great friend of the pod, space archaeologist Dr Alice Gorman, aka Dr Space Junk, In this episode, we wonder whether we're focusing on the wrong things. Maybe we're too fixated on the space billionaires and their pals going up in their little penis-shaped rockets, and maybe we should be thinking more about all of these other creative and alternative ways that we can get off Earth too. We talk about interspecies romance, yes, really, and we reflect on the imagination of space pioneers from the 1800s. They all thought we'd be living in space by now. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the big, long, high-gravity Konstantin Tsiolkovsky Love Fest with Dr. Alice Gorman. Dr. Alice Gorman, welcome again to The Edict. Still, it is always a delight and a pleasure to talk to you, so I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. Well, look, uh, something you may not be uh, particularly happy about is is this uh, news report, or this one in, in particular is from Global News in Canada, about literal space junk. This month, Russia released military video of its new missile systems, capable of intercepting other missiles, aircraft, and satellites. What few expected was this, that Russia would shoot down one of its own defunct satellites, dispersing an estimated 1,500 pieces of shrapnel into orbit, threatening some of the 3,400 active satellites above Earth. The largest is the International Space Station. The crew of four Americans, two Russians and a German were forced to take shelter in their docked space capsules for two hours in the event they had to leave suddenly. Washington is furious. Russia's dangerous and irresponsible behavior jeopardizes the long-term sustainability of outer space and clearly demonstrates that Russia's claims of opposing the weaponization of space are disingenuous and hypocritical. Russia insists the fragments pose no risk and calls the U.S. criticism hypocritical. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says Russia is prepared to negotiate rules for space and says it's the Americans who are creating an arms race. Around 30,000 space objects, anything larger than an iPhone, are being tracked with countless smaller pieces speeding around Earth. Now, the thing that really hits me about that, first of all, is that the iPhone is a unit of size now. Because it used to be objects bigger than a Coke can or a baseball, I think. I'm trying to think of any others that have been used. But There's um, bread boxes. I don't actually know what a bread box is, but you often hear people talking about things the size of a bread box. Well, we called them bread bins in Australia. Oh, is that what it's got? Oh, no. Uh, yeah, they should have just said as big as a loaf of bread, right? Which is also <laughs> often used as an analogy for um, CubeSat sizes as well, big as a loaf of bread. But, yeah, I think it is interesting our sensibilities have been so changed that, that the size of an iPhone is something automatically understood the world across. <laughs> but back to the subject at hand, 
uh, this shrapnel, these pieces of junk, uh, this this really is a problem, isn't it? Oh, it is a problem. And, and you know, when I heard the news of this anti-satellite test, I was alternatively, like, disgusted and angry. Um, I found myself very angry, really, about it um, because we we all know what the consequences of this are. Everyone involved in space across the world is very well aware uh, what the consequences are. And, and, you know, these include in the short term, it was putting at risk the lives of the crew of the International Space Station, including, as the report said, two cosmonauts. So that just seemed bizarre. Like, why would you do that? And we already know uh, that... It's possible to hit satellites with Earth-based missiles. There have been, you know, a few of these tests in the past. I mean, America and China have done them. but And India as well. Oh, okay, and India as well. So um, the poor crew of the International Space Station were apparently woken up, you know, the, the equivalent of 4 a.m. their time and told to retreat very quickly into their return craft, which were docked. And we've now got uh, an estimated 1,500 new pieces of debris all in one go. And we know from the Chinese Fengyong-1C anti-satellite test back in 2007, that actually created more debris. I think there was about 4,000 tracked objects in that debris cloud, which gradually sort of dispersed and unraveled until you know, they weren't travelling around in a bunch anymore. But 10 years later... I'm picturing something which ends up looking like the rings of Saturn, effectively, (sighs) isn't it? You know, all of the debris will spread out in the orbital plane. Interesting you should say that because uh, this is actually the topic of a very famous paper published in 1978 by Donald Kessler, after whom the Kessler syndrome is named, ah. and Burton Corpolet. Everybody forgets about Burton Corpolet, who was the co-author on this famous paper. But the part of the purpose of this paper was to try and figure out if increasing the amount of orbital debris would in fact make planetary rings. And the conclusion of that paper that most people are familiar with is is that enough space junk could cause a runaway cascade of collisions that would never end and would make parts of space un, unusable. But that was, a, in fact, one of their original purposes, to work out if we could get a naturally evolving set of planetary rings, which is pretty, well, there aren't any others in the inner solar system. So, yes, that is a consequence. And, look, personally, I think... It could be pretty, you know, as a sort of a a human-created work of planetary engineering, there could be something quite beautiful about having uh, rings made out of space junk. But, of course, the practical applications are, well, in fact, if they were in well-defined rings, that would be much more manageable than the current situation where it's basically a... Uh, 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 sort of evenly distributed cloud around the Earth. Even as you're about to say a work of planetary engineering, my brain was going a work of art, finishing that <laughs> sentence. And, you know, I think that... Tourist attraction. 
Here, aliens, <laughs> come and come and look at our rings. No, that's not right. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> but you know, you're right. In a in a sense, this this is kind of technological art. It is taking a boring old planet and turning enhancing it in some way that's has its own aesthetic. So I, I don't think that's off the mark at all. And of course, we will never see it from the outside. Uh, it would be a work of art best appreciated probably by those approaching Earth from other parts of the solar system. But it, it's exactly the kind of techno signature that the SETI mob are out there looking for on other planets. SETI, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That is the one. This, of course, comes back to something you've written about before, which is space as a, uh, a commons, isn't it? This is true. So space like uh, the high seas and the atmosphere and the sky is considered to be a global commons, which is the, the which all humanity has a right to. And this is enshrined in the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which says that space is the uh, common province of all humanity. And one of the underlying principles of the human use of space is that it, it should be accessible, equally accessible to all humans on Earth. So uh, people often make the analogy with, you know, the tragedy of the commons. The commons are there for everybody to use, but if if individuals aren't responsible, they make it unusable for everyone as well. So individual actions have that cumulative effect and uh, prevent, um, well, turn the commons into a wasteland, I suppose. So this is kind of, I mean, I know there's a lot of interesting kind of philosophical and po political critiques of the concept of the commons. But for me, you know, I think we really have to hold on to that idea that space is a commons, that space is something for all of humanity and all of the animals and life on earth as well. It doesn't just have to be us because the minute we let that go, we open a little crack and people like our friends, the space billionaires, will be leaping into that little tiny open door and they'll be making territorial claims in space. I mean, Musk has al almost already said that's what he intends to do on Mars mm, if he gets mm. there and doesn't die within three minutes. So I think we have to, I think it's such an important concept and, and one that we, we need to be carefully monitoring how, how it's holding up in the current environment. Well, we may uh, get to the space billionaires again later in the pod. Uh, I just wanted to note before we move on, though, uh, there has been the comparison that the law of space should be very similar to the law of the sea, which evolved over centuries. The idea that, uh, amongst other things, that uh, a nation-state uh, can, can lay claim to the sea, or in this case, planets can lay claim to space, I suppose, within a certain distance. But beyond that, it is a commons and, and you know, anyone has the right to travel there. No one, no one owns it unless you come to some other agreement. Um, that took, as I say, centuries to unravel. I guess this is going to be the case again too, with lots of conflict along the way. Mm, more than likely. Mm. Happy days.
Getting into space is difficult for a variety of reasons, one of which is that breaking free of Earth's gravity requires a significant amount of energy. The only reliable way we've found to do it so far is with rockets, but a firm called Spin Launch has a different idea. Using a giant vacuum chamber and a rotating hypersonic tether, the firm hopes to essentially throw satellites into orbit. The startup has just completed its first kinetic test launch by heaving a vehicle high into the atmosphere. This is like a trebuchet into space in a way. <laughs> uh, it's the, there's some videos on on YouTube. I'll link to I'll link to them. Uh, but yes, they spin this large centrifuge, the 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 object on the end of an arm, around at high speed until it's literally hypersonic. And then they throw it out through a little membrane in the side, uh, so because of course the the centrifuge has to be in a vacuum so that there's no air resistance, and then boom. So they've they've chucked a little one up into the air, and everyone's going hooray. Do you think this will be a thing, Alice? You know, I think it will be a thing because I think we do have to find some more creative ways to get into space, and. There's some oldish ideas that haven't been fully sort of taken to their logical limit. And we're also launching different kinds of things these days. So the little small satellites that are starting to become the mainstay of space industry, you know, if you have one big rocket, sure, like Mr. Musk, you can launch, you know, 60 at the one time. But if you're just launching little ones one by one, uh, then this this vacuum spinning thing uh, looks like extremely promising technology, and I think we we start we have to start moving away from those massive rockets, which do have uh, not great environmental impacts. Mm. Upper stage rocket bodies are a major contributor to space junk, and they also have environmental impacts when they re-enter because alumina and soot particles have an impact on the ozone layer. So these kinds ah. of creative technologies, I think, are fantastic. Yes. The, I mean, the, the little satellites you mentioned, you did use the word CubeSat before. For, for anyone who's not familiar with them, there is now a modular standard for 10-centimetre cubes or, you know, multiples of them stacked together, like 10 by 10 by 30 centimetres. That can be launched in groups, it's a bit like the containerization of freight on Earth, except the containers are quite a bit smaller. Um, yeah, you could just chuck up one at a time, which is amazing. Uh, I should say, for fans of Kerbal Space Program, the the kind of space vehicle space program simulator, Scott Manley, uh, who does videos on how to, to play in that world, he's done quite a long video explaining this centrifuge spacecraft throwing thing. Spin Launch, I should say, is the name of the company, but uh, he's done a nice explainer. It got me thinking about... Um, the other weirder launch concepts we've had. Now, I'm of an age where Jerry Anderson's TV series Fireball XL5 from the early 1960s was still on TV later in Australia. That's where the spacecraft was kind of aircrafty shape. It sat on a rocket sled and that launched it down a long ramp that tipped up at the end and it then broke away from that rocket sled mm -hmm under its own power and kept climbing. Uh, that's that's not purely fictional, of course, is it? 
Well, I think you know more about this one than me still. <laughs> uh, so, but All it's right. too like we there's a whole um, range of sort of satellite delivery systems which don't involve the stage rock, but they do involve stages. So you use something to get something to a sufficient speed and height and then something else to get it a little bit further. And the one I love with this is the raccoon where you send something up on a balloon, um, but, you know, a big enough, you need a balloon big enough to get the thing up there. And the raccoons were huge in the sort of 60s, 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, and I don't know, they just sort of fell out of favour. Maybe balloons aren't as sexy as, as big rockets. I don't know. Uh, uh, large phallic symbols and all that, mm. which has, of course, been a theme through all of this. As an aside, there's a whole amateur high-altitude balloon fandom as well these days. It's particularly strong in South Australia, and I forget the name of the group, but I'll link to them. But they will quite often go out using something very much like a weather balloon. Uh, in fact, I think they are the weather balloons, to take a, a radio sonde, uh, a little sort of beacon, etc., up to... Uh, 90,000 feet, what's that, the 30 kilometres and so on, and then they track it. And that's that's a fun little group to watch and they're connected with, with the uh, amateur radio scene and the packet data scene that, that then uses amateur radio to transmit data. Um, and they're doing fun things like taking like teddy bears to the edge of space. So they well, have still, lovely they are doing imagery. A- an even more fun thing that I feel you need to know about right now. So, oh yes, uh, please, it, it, news break, news break. <laughs> so, my uh, friend uh, Will, who's part of that community. Um, oh yes, I know Will. In fact, has made a payload called Alice, which consists of iced vovos, and has been sending <laughs> iced vovos. <laughs> To space. <laughs> to space because uh, it's it's my favourite biscuit and I do talk a lot about cakes and biscuits and pastries on social media, I fear to say. So Will very kindly created the Alice payload uh, and I forget, I forget what Alice stands for but Iced Cookie is part of that acronym and he, every time they send a little um, Iced Vovo payload up on their balloon, he very charmingly posts pictures uh, of the iced vovos in space, which I love. Anyway, it is it is very it is very charming, and uh, I feel we need to know more about um, biscuits and their qualities in high altitudes and in space. And it's certainly not the silliest thing that has ever been sent into space. That's, <laughs> Far from <laughs> that's it. a case. The other one I should mention is the space elevator. The idea that well, if you attach one end of I'll say a a rope or a bit of string, obviously something more substantial, uh, to the Earth, and you attach the other end to a geosynchronous satellite out at however far that is, 23,000 kilometres or whatever it is. I can't remember the number. Um, Because both ends will be over the same spot on Earth, you can then just have uh, things like an elevator that climb up and down that rope. Now, it can't be a rope, as I keep saying. It has to be some incredibly strong material and people have been a, a doing the experiments. A na- 
nanofibers, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, my head still explodes at the idea of that being possible, and yet it is a thing and there have been quite serious studies. There have still, but the thing, as I understand it, the problem most studies run into, well, so they, they like to go for a nanofiber because it will be very strong, as you say, an important factor for minimum weight. But if you have a fibre that is 35,000 kilometres long, uh, with the best will in the world, even if it's like one molecule thick, it's still going to weigh a huge amount. And if it became Mm. detached from its orbital mooring point and fell onto the Earth, that would be a bit of a disaster. Um, Suboptimal, certainly. Suboptimal Uh, is a a good way to describe it. Um, I will say, though, when I was looking that up, the idea of using something like that, and in, and in the original uh, concept it was a tower reaching geosynchronous orbit, was first published in 1895 by Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. Do you know, I mean, he was an extraordinary man. The things that he... Mm imagined and sometimes he would just talk about them in passing to move on to his you know more the things he was really obsessed about but hiding away in his little cottage in the in the town of Kaluga he thought up almost all of the stuff so much of the stuff that is now real technology I mean what an extraordinary mind it, it is that era I mean, the the very end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, uh, I mean, right, Tsiolkovsky is, of course, uh, uh, you know, very up the top end of the bell curve on this stuff. But the, the kind of imaginations that were happening then because the technology was just exploding around them, that, that their minds seemed to be racing with how can we do things with all of this, with these new possibilities. Yeah, and, you know, now you're making me think where are – we're so embroiled in the sort of nitty-gritty stuff of like we're using all these satellites now, we've got all these people who are trying to make or are making profits out of all of these industries. We're sort of on this uh, hyper-capitalist trajectory into space and – well, there are some people. What I'm thinking about is is where are the similar people who have grand but not offensive visions of the future of space? I guess Driven by I'm... the noble tradition of exploration and science of the capital S. Yes, yes, uh, that's it. Uh, it seems that, that science is kind of getting sidelined in a lot of the stuff that's going on at the moment. But then when you think of those early theorists like uh, Tsiolkovsky and Hermann Nordung and Hermann Oberth and all of those people, they all thought we'd be living in space by now. So, mm. Well, you know, a dozen or so of us are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not very many. A little way up. Yeah, not many. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, maybe the elevator to space will not happen.
Before we continue, uh, that uh, balloon enthusiast group, Project Horus, it's called, H-O-R-U-S, uh, and you can find them on the web. I've linked to their old website, but in fact, their new stuff is on the website of AREG, A-R-E-G, the Amateur Radio Experimenters Group, uh, because part of this is just, well, you know, how do we have fun with communications and sending all this stuff up on balloons is is part of that. There are other, other people doing it around the world too, uh, but uh, Horus, H-O-R-U-S, is uh, the group in South Australia. And while I'm, I'm catching up on things, let's do the housekeeping. The first thing you need to know, this is wonderful news. Next week, the final episode of the Spring Series of this podcast will have as special guest the wonderful Alex Lee. You will know her from uh, comedy on SBS TV's The Feed. You will know her way back from uh, The Roast. Uh, I'm trying to think what else she's been on. Uh, there was the recent ABC quiz show, Win the Week, which I thought was quite cool. That's still up on iView. She's a dragon friend, dragon friends being the Dungeons and Dragons uh, live stream slash podcast slash stage show. She's a bit of a geek, but, you know, what did you expect? Anyway, Alex Lee, we're recording on Tuesday. So if you're a listener with trigger words or a conversation topic you want to cash in, get them to me this Tuesday, the 29th of November by 9am, Australian Eastern Daylight Time. We're recording at 10am. So get them to me by 9am and that should be heaps of fun. We're both looking forward to it. We've been wanting to, to do this podcast for a little while. So that's Alex Lee next week. It, well, in, in a couple of days. Wow. If you would like to support this podcast, yeah, this this is the plug bit. You, you know the drill. Thank you to everyone who supported the Spring Series. You're all listed on the website. You all have big smoochy lovey kisses from me uh, or not as appropriate. Um, you've been wonderful. Thank you. I won't list you all again uh, today. If you would like to support the, uh, me and the pod and things over the, the summer – uh, yeah, look, I will do something summerish, but if you just want to throw a tip into the tip jar for now, that will be great. The 9pmedic.com slash tip, the 9pmedic.com slash tip, and and then we'll work out what happens in the new year. I, I have a, a, f- a few ideas. I do. I have ideas. <laughs> Trigger word time, Dr. Alice Gorman, and you are extremely popular, young lady. There have been three trigger words that people specifically want to throw at you, and and I reckon we will have to draw one from the glass jar of transparency as well. But Ross Nye has been uh, badgering me for weeks now saying, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, I want to throw in the word opportunity. Now, I'm not quite sure whether he'd prefer to talk about B, the Mars Exploration Rover, which was uh, shut down mid-2018, or opportunity, noun, a time or set of circumstances that makes it possible to do something. Mm. I'll probably have a little bit on each. 
maybe a little bit on it. So, Let's talk about the little our little six-wheeled or eight-wheeled friend, six-wheeled friend. Well, when I think about those Martian rovers, I always think about how there's something about that rover form. Maybe it's because they're like kind of like pets that people form such incredible bonds with. Like people, people love those rovers. And it's partially their shape because, you know, they've often got a camera sticking up that's kind of like mm. a head. It's kind of like mm. a a sort of a, I don't know, like a, a funny little giraffe with wheels instead of long legs or a little robot dog or something. So the, something about their design kind of makes that easy to do. And I think it's also something about them being you know, kind of mostly all alone out there, just trundling along, battling away. Uh, people kind of respond a lot to that idea, I think. So, sure, like the rovers, like Opportunity and all of the other ones we've had up there and the new ones we've got coming down the pipeline like Rosalind Franklin, um, it, there's just they help us make very sort of human and emotional um, bonds with space landscapes as well. So it's not just about the science and the instruments and all of that kind of stuff. I, I love them because of the responses they get from people. And it's always so sad when one of them, you know, gets turned off um, mm. and then you kind of feel then it's like a it's it becomes a little memorial to its own death sitting on the surface of another planet. And I wonder if, you know, we'll get back there someday and maybe put a little plaque on the location where they were, if they're still, if they're not all covered up by dust or I don't know, and and give them their own little, little grave memorial. What I realised just as you said that, was that the height of the camera above the, the ground on its little head is about the same height as you or me would see looking out at the planet. And I think that's what makes it different from other perspectives of a planet. It's a very human perspective. It also walks around at a slow pace. It's not one of those rapid fly-through um, you know, visualisations. It's although that's you know the kind of video that gets produced. It's this little thing walking a little bit at a time. I mean, you know, a meter or so at a time. Sometimes yeah. they're hardly hooning around. There's there's that, and of course NASA itself has humanized the more recent ones by having a Twitter account speaking in the first person, um, as if it is the spacecraft talking. And you know, some people object to that kind of yeah. anthropomorphization and all that stuff. But I actually think it's a, a, a sort of aspect of social robotics and it's like the Turing test. So if something's acting as if it is sentient, what is the difference between that and actual sentience? Mm. So I think there's all kinds of blurrings of boundaries here and I think that's all fine. Like this is at some point in the future, you know, it, they'll be like, uh, uh, what do you call this stuff? Like, you know, we'll be able to project ourselves into uh, a rover on the Martian surface and actually see it as if it were our own eyes. 
and we're kind of in the early stages of that. Telepresence is one oh, word that's, that's the, been that's used there. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of, exactly. And, and we do have that uh, uh, already in a sense. We've got those robots that are built on a base a two-wheel base like a Segway, and then they're essentially a stick with an iPad on top. But, <laughs> and the person's face appears on the iPad and they use the iPad's camera. I mean, I have interacted with, uh, you know, someone at a conference using one of them. Um, uh, Adam Spencer, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the media personality. Uh, yes, um, he, uh, he um, hosted and moderated a panel discussion while appearing in one of them, which was hilarious when it went a little close to the edge of the stage and just went straight off. Oh, no. (laughs) But they exist um, and they have also been used rather depressingly uh, so that family can say goodbye to their loved ones who are about to die of COVID-19 in the isolation wards. That's Yeah, that's true, Uh, which is – it's – sad and awful, but you think that's a form of being present that wasn't available yes. to people uh, in the past. So there's something mm. to be thankful for, I guess, as well. Mm. So, you know, I can I can see that's a thing. Well, we can already – there are already some things on the internet that you can get, uh, you know, a few minutes of at a time of controlling, and they're often just little things like a webcam in a farm or something like that. But – uh, oh, could we could we see commercially available rovers that you could hire like an, an amusement park ride, hire a five-minute go on a Mars rover? I mean, there's a bit of a time lag involved, but that, that's not going to work quite like that. But we could do it with undersea drones. We could do it with, with aerial drones. We could do it with robots touring... Uh, otherwise difficult and remote locations like uh, uh, volcanic craters or uh, uh, the Chernobyl uh, nuclear site. Indeed, there's a lot of potential for being in Mm. places that are remote, difficult to get to or just downright dangerous. And I think the sense of controlling things, because, like, we can all see pictures of this stuff, but it's not the same Mm. thing. That that element of control is kind of about – embodiment it's it's about uh, an engagement with a place and uh, a sequence of steps about from the senses I suppose uh, and you know I would I would definitely want to do things like that it's it, it's like the more the more you can be physically part of that process the more real it seems maybe or the more it becomes mm. something that's part of your bodily memory, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. And even if you're, the location of your point of view is fixed, still just being able to turn your head and he- hear the sound yeah. change or whatever it, whatever it is and racing ahead with massive amounts of computational power, if you had a series of cameras strung out, you could do the equivalent of a phased array radar system to create a virtual 3D model (laughs) uh, and a real-time one, and you could move your point of view around this uh, virtual 3D model because you've got it being synthesised live yeah, so in that sense, the, the distance in time and 
physical location is kind of becomes collapsed into it's gone nothing. Now. Yeah. Yeah, because you're just streaming the model in real time. Yeah. Yeah, down to you. And you are in in a live way experience what happened on Mars however many minutes ago. And you know still, so this comes back to well, maybe this is something relating to opportunity as well. So at the moment mm-hmm. we have, you know, the handful of people like it's I forget, it's under 600 people I think you've ever been into space. And now Mm. that's all changing because people are arguing about what's space and what's not space because (laughs) did Jeff Bezos's passengers go into space, did Richard Branson's, whatever. That number of people who physically kind of been above above the Kármán line is going to change. But as we were saying earlier, if space is for everybody, being physically in space isn't the only way to kind of mm. experience that. So so these kinds of interactions and technologies which allow us to be virtually engaging with a landscape on another planet or, you know, an, an, an orbit far beyond what we could normally reach, that's a version of access to space and being in space that, again, forges those kinds of very human contact. So... In terms of sort of digital citizenship of the solar system, I think there's maybe, I mean, look, I'm sure there have been scholars who have gone into this sort of stuff in great detail and there's bound to be all kinds of legal ethical stuff around it. But just as an avenue where maybe we're too fixated on the space billionaires and their pals going up in their little penis-shaped rockets, so maybe we should be thinking more about all of these other creative and alternative ways that we can get off Earth too with, like, without $250,000 down the back of the couch. Mm. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ross and I, for uh, triggering that conversation. Now, Alice, for this uh, next one, I've cheated a bit by by grabbing some recordings. Uh, Peter Leverdink, a long, another long-time supporter of the pod, has... Uh, Given us the word theremin. Now, for those of you going, what, 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 what? Here's the sound of a theremin. That theremin is from a movie soundtrack. Which movie, Alice? I don't know. <laughs> oh, come on. You do know no, it. No, I don't you, know. You'll, you have to you'll tell kick me. yourself. You'll kick yourself. All right, 2001. Forbidden Planet. Oh, Oh, I should have known ah, that. You're right. I'm kicking myself. Yes, I knew you, that there were theremins yeah. in that soundtrack. <laughs> yes, the theremin uh, created by Leon Theremin or Lev Sergeyevich. Sergey, oh Sergeyevich, Lev Sergeyevich Theremin, but Leon Theremin is as he's generally known. He patented that in 1928. And before we discuss, it's it's kind of. Um, influences and social aspects. Um, people will know, perhaps, that I'm a fan of Time Ghost TV, who produce historical documentaries uh, on YouTube. And one of their series uh, is Between Two Wars, which is about the period 
funnily enough, between World War One and World War Two, the first series looked at purely the military and uh, political aspects that led to World War Two. The you know legacy of World War One going into World War Two, but the second series uh, looks at as they say, the social aspects uh, and the zeitgeist of the time. And one of their episodes was titled Frankenstein and the Socialist Origins of Electronic Music. Ooh. And here's... Yes, I thought you'd be <laughs> interested in that. And and here's, here's a quick grab about the theremin. Funnily enough, this weird-sounding instrument is the product of Soviet state-sponsored research. Terman has recently started working at the newly established Physico-Technical Institute, directed by acclaimed physicist Abram Yaffe. Soviet Russia may be locked in economic hardship and war, but science is at the top of the regime's agenda, holding the important ideological function of proving the triumph of modern communism. Though only 24, Terman is already an accomplished physicist and has a wealth of technical experience working as a military radio engineer. He has joined the Institute to research high-frequency electrical oscillation. His first invention is what he calls a radio watchman. It involves an antenna radiating an electric magnetic field across a room, which can detect any disruption in its frequency if something or someone passes through it, triggering an alarm. Basically, it's using radio technology to create a burglar alarm. And there's lots more in that segment as well um, about it. <laughs> commie, commie electronic music. But, of course, it then became part of the soundtrack of 50s B-grade sci-fi movies. Yes, it's it's a sound we associate so much with science fiction and space and robots and and also spooky things because some people might remember that a theremin is used in the original theme music for Midsummer Murders. So oh, yes. the the spooky and the uncanny and the unsolved and the mysterious are all the kind of associations we have with the theremin. Now, I must say Peter is being a little bit cheeky by proposing theremin because he knows that I bought myself a theremin, a theremini <laughs> to be more precise, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Apparently mm-hmm. I was not alone in, in thinking it's a good time to get back into music and many people were buying instruments at this time. So I got myself a theremin and I feared to say, I mean, I knew it was not going to be an easy instrument to learn, but it is far more difficult than I ever imagined. So I am still... <laughs> I am still at the most basic stages. And then you you watch, like, there's some amazing theremin players um, that you can find on YouTube playing incredible stuff, beautiful. And so I watch those videos now and I have the the dawning realisation that I will be lucky to get Mary Had a Little Lamb out of mine. But I'm after a a hiatus of uh, many, many months, I actually took it out of its box just yesterday still, just ah, yesterday, determined. Excellent. <laughs> that, so if I were a more organised person, um, I could have volunteered uh, an embarrassing demonstration at this point in time. But fortunately, it is not yet tuned, so <laughs> I cannot do that. 
Oh, that's a shame. Um, look, it is hard. I will link to those uh, modern players. I've seen some of them on YouTube, and they're just astounding performances. But one of the first people to popularise the theremin was Clara Rockmore, and here's a recording of her. Uh, I'll only play a grab of it because copyright although everyone's probably dead, but, you know, let's be on the safe side. Um, this is from Saint-Saëns' uh, uh, piece, The Swan. Uh, this is a piano, obviously. <laughs> As you said, Alice, the the kind of ethereal nature of it uh, is amazing. There's some photographs of this performance as well, uh, extant, and it, the theremin astounded people because it did seem to be just conjuring music out of out of thin air. It's it's just amazing stuff. So for people who've never seen one played or watched any of these videos, you basically there's two antennas on a theremin and you move your hand. You don't touch anything. You simply move your hands. And when you watch these great masters of the instrument, it'll be, you know, just a little subtle shift of angle, a twist of a finger, and and there's new notes come out. And I think that piece you just played still, there are parts of that where it sounds like a human voice, doesn't it? Yes. It's, so it's this disembodied radio frequency electronic instrument that's still somehow sort of, um, I don't know, it's so full of emotion. Uh, they're, they're wonderful. I like the photos too of uh, Clara Rockman playing it because she's wearing this 1920s big bustly formal dress <laughs> <laughs> and she looks like a stern schoolmistress or something from the time. Uh, you know, one of the things that first... Um, got me interested in this kind of music or electronic instruments was um, I was an undergraduate at the University of Melbourne, which is the location of the Percy Granger Museum. Ah. And Percy Granger was, I can't remember how the dates work out, but he was into electronic music and he had a number of different kinds of um, instruments like this. And I used to go to the museum and just look at stuff and, um, but he, the other thing that really sticks in my memory from the Percy Granger Museum is he used to like to make his own clothes out of bath mats and some mm. of his bath mat costumes are in the museum. And I don't know, there's just something very bold and very, you know, his complete lack of concern for public opinion 
Um, I mean, an interesting man in so many ways. So <laughs> I was about I, to say these are these are the least unusual aspects yes, yes. of Percy Granger's personality, shall <laughs> we say? True. Very, very true. But the bath mat costumes and the and the instruments um, are the things that have always stuck in my mind um, from the Percy Granger Museum, which. I don't know what the current museum situation is in Melbourne, but if you ever get a chance to to go, dear listeners, um, it's fantastic. Ah, well, I've written that down as a a place to go to. Uh, Yes, and if you want to explore some of uh, Mr Granger's other aspects, um, let's just say he was very close to his mother and uh, she was a stern disciplinarian. Very subtly expressed still. <laughs> well, yes, yes. I mean, by the standards of this podcast, that is that is positively clean and family-friendly. Uh, then again, Mr Granger was very family-friendly. Uh, we should yes, draw yes, yes, let's one. move on. <laughs> From the glass jar of transparency, this will be a random um, word. Let's see what's on this uh, bit of paper here. Ah, this is also from Peter Leverding. What are the And odds? the word is da- – what? It's oh, pretty good, actually. He's very generous and he makes sure right. to send words in. <laughs> his, his, this word is doubt, D-O-U-B-T, doubt. Mm. What do you Gosh. have doubts about, Alice? What do I have doubts about? Oh, my God. I mean, that's just like almost everything in creation I have doubts about. But I would consider that to be a not, pretty normal not, not state. Not a person filled with confidence, <laughs> or as you say, is that just the normal state of things? Wow, I suppose I'm thinking of we live our lives based on the information we have to hand, which is only ever a tiny, tiny portion of what there is to be known about any situation or any material or any state of affairs. And I suppose maybe uh, I think now, no, I'm going to counter this. I'm going to halt that thought there. Okay. So I was going down an extreme sort of relativistic path. Okay. Uh, in which nothing could be known, therefore everything is to be doubted and the foundations of your world could be overturned at any time. But this is not actually. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a bit of nihilism every now and then. <laughs> um Something I've sort of, this has probably got nothing to do with what was in Peter's mind, but there's there's often a sort of a tension between the hard sciences and the humanities and social sciences, which is about mm. the existence of a fixed external reality and uh, the fact that everything we know is determined by our senses and minds uh, so an ontology versus epistemology sort of thing. So all the hard scientists right. are sort of like, what's wrong with you, social science type people? This is all a big pile of wank. And this has been going on for decades, as you know. Um, but- I, I, I'm tempted to say centuries. Oh, well, oh, yes, you would be. <laughs> a century, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But well, definitely exacerbated forever. by, you know, contemporary academic publishing traditions. Ah, um, uh, yes. So... So obviously I'm sort of, as an archaeologist, I kind of straddle both camps a little bit. But in the last, I don't know, many years, I have, few years, 
I have been veering more and more towards the work of Australian eco-feminist philosopher Val Plumwood, who is, uh, her work is, I don't know, I find it completely inspiring. So at a certain point in her life, she went on a kayak trip in North Queensland somewhere, or maybe it was Northern Territory, and she was by herself and she was attacked by a crocodile. And she fought the crocodile off and survived. And the canoe, which she was travelling in at the time, is currently in the National Museum of Australia. And this completely changed her worldview. So she was sort of saying, well, sure, there's all this stuff that we can only know things through our senses and there's no real world out there that we can ever hope to understand, to, to basically saying, well, that crocodile didn't care about my philosophical position <laughs> and she kind of changed her thinking around there being um, a knowable external reality. Or maybe not knowable, but it's out there. It doesn't necessarily have to be our friend and it literally does not care about how we, we philosophise our epistemology. Um, and thinking about this, so as humans are moving further into space and understanding more about space, it's kind of a similar thing. It's like the galaxy doesn't care about what Sokal published in 1980, whatever it was, the famous Sokal controversy, you know. The galaxy is out there and we're living in it and we have to accept that there's a level, it exists, which is so far beyond our scale that it's stupid to kind of say it doesn't exist because of some philosophy, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it's a bit like going the other way and saying, you know, we don't care in a day-to-day basis about neutrons. Yes, you know, it's, that's you know, a fantastic the analogy. We, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I really like that <laughs> They're down there somewhere. We don't, we don't interact with them. And yet they're kind of there, you know. They affect and us. We are this, neutrons. This is true. They are. Most of us is neutrons, in fact, when you think about it. <laughs> And a lot of space. So, um, <laughs> in a in a sense, um, thinking, bringing this back to doubt, um, two things I think come out of uh, fears. One is that acknowledging that there is uh, an external reality that we can't control does create uh, an obligation to think about what rights it has in terms of our impacts on it. So it creates, I think, a moral obligation. And the second thing, I guess, is that it is kind of comforting. At some level, um, you know, if we're looking on ourselves as the little neutrons in in relation to the sort of galactic human, in one way it's very impersonalising or dehumanising to think that we matter, matter for nothing. We're so insignificant and little in terms of the greater universe. But... It's also quite comforting to think, well, this stuff really does exist out there and it's something to hang on to, like that the certainty that the universe isn't all inside our heads to me does remove some levels of doubt and is quite reassuring, if that makes sense. It does, and I'm going to have to think about that later. Perhaps everyone listening, pause now and just ponder that for a bit before we move on. Thank you, Peter, for, for sending us down that path. <laughs> and our final 
Trigger word is from another long-time supporter of the pod, Yoop DeVitt, Voyages, brackets one and two. And they're quite amazing. They are amazing, and I prefer Voyager 2 because everybody talks about Voyager 1 made it outside the solar system first because they were on two different trajectories. So everybody talks about Voyager 1 and they forget about Voyager 2. So Voyager 2 is my favourite, although technically, well, they're not identical because they do have slightly different instruments and their instruments have also been sort of turned off at different times as well. So they they have different capabilities. But apart from that, they're, you know, virtually identical. But I think it's – so I'm really glad that both Voyager 1 and 2 got a look in. Uh, in this <laughs> oh, that's world. great. We should say, for those not familiar again, Voyager 1 and 2 were launched in 1977 because there happened to be a good alignment of Jupiter and Saturn at the time. And their mission was really – just to fly past Jupiter and Saturn, and then because they were going so well, oh, we're, they're still working. Let's go past Uranus and Neptune. See what I did there about Uranus? And then <laughs> uh, they've just kept going and going, and they're both still going using 1977 technology. It is just the most amazing thing. It, it really is. Um, so we're still getting good science from them. And, of course, the uh, Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex at Tidbinbilla is one of only three places that can hear and send commands to Voyager. So this is there's a very Australian connection here. And now that I've brought up the Australian connection, the other thing I should mention is that both spacecraft have the famous golden records attached to them. And these ah, yes. are... Um, well, like a vinyl record, except they're made of copper and coated in uranium so they could be um, dated by someone who finds them in the future and included on the many, many, many things on these golden records are, well, I'm just going to tell you the Australian things I know about on the golden records. One of them is the voice of the Australian what was he? He was kind of like a commissioner to the UN or something in the 1970s and he was an Esperanto fanatic. And can I just say, I mean, the whole history of Esperanto, an artificial made-up language that people hoped would bring world peace by becoming the global lingua franca, it's fascinating in itself. But so, so this Australian politician or diplomat, whatever you call him, speaks in Esperanto on um, on the Voyager Golden Records, which I think is kind of both a little bit funny and kind of wonderful. And then there is a picture of the Sydney Opera House, which was, I think, in the 70s. When I think of this picture, there's still a little bit of scaffolding in it. So I think there was still some work going on on it. And the thing that really blows my mind is that among the 90 minutes of music that were selected by Carl Sagan and his committee to go onto the Golden Records are 1.23 seconds of three musicians from Millingimby Island uh, off the top end of the Northern Territory um, singing and playing the didgeridoo and the clapsticks. So this is a little piece of uh, Aboriginal culture that has left the solar system, and I just think that is incredible. 
it, I mean, it is fantastic. I must say, and again, I'll link to the whole thing because, I mean, these days you can just download that whole record and the images. It's all available online. Um, uh, is is what a snapshot of the 1970s American <laughs> worldview it was. Yes, this is true. Shall we just say? <laughs> uh, and, of course, like they knew the the people. So there's all kinds of, um, you know, official greetings and stuff uh, that mm. are on it. I mean, all of that stuff is really interesting too. But if you I mean, in the about- same way that the base plate of uh, the Apollo 11 lander on the moon has a, a message to the universe from Richard M. Nixon. Yes. Which, which is, which, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to think about there when when the aliens come and, you know, they find the yes. moon rather than the dead earth and, and Richard M. Nixon becomes our spokesperson for all eternity. Oh, yes, that's a, a scary prospect. So um, the... Carl Sorry, Sagan but back and, to the Voyager record, yes. And um, Frank Drake and the, and the committee, like they obviously knew that whatever choices they made could be criticised and that mm. those choices would be the choices of their era. So they genuinely tried to do the best they could and they tried to get a good sort of chronological and geographic representation. So there is a fair bit of Indigenous music from around the world on these records. There are ways in which, even though they were very conscious of the limitations of making any kind of choice, there are the unintended uh, interpretations that could be so that we can have no idea what they will be, and we can have no idea of what sort of impression or information um, people from the future or other sentient beings will get from these selections. And what we do know is that (laughs) it's not going to be um, uh, an inclusive or accurate impression of what human musical culture was like at the time. I seem to remember that the, the finished product was given to some random intelligent humans to say, what what would you make of this if you found it? And some of their interpretations are quite funny, one of them being that what is meant to be a navigational diagram showing where the Earth is in relation to certain pulsars. Um, someone said, no, that's a big spider, and the two <laughs> humans are raised hands, not in friendship, but calling out for help to save them from the giant spider. Um <laughs> I think that's actually um, the pioneer plaque that you're talking about. Uh, Sorry, so it is. Which has has two humans on it, and that's hilarious in it. So the Pioneer 10 and 11, um, I think Pioneer 10 was launched in 1972, so they're a little bit earlier than the Voyagers, and we have no contact with them. They've completely run out of power, and they're meant to get into interstellar space, I don't know, sometime in the next 100 years or something. Um, but they had these plaques and there was a concern um, that the there's a naked man and woman, the ones with the raised hands mm-hmm. you just referred to, and apparently there was a massive debate because um, the, the woman had to have a much more schematic representation of her genital region um, because there was an objection <sighs> to, anyway, what they yes. called the cleft. 
So <laughs> that had, had oh, the euphemisms. Oh, oh dear. Mm. So, oh goodness me, Americans, right? It's it's you know they can shit each other willy nilly, but. Don't show the naughty bits. Oh, dear. Thank you, you, for yet another brief and fascinating discussion. Now, Alice Gorman, we have been going a while. I reckon we've got time for one more of these three things. We can either talk about... Love on a High Grav World, your recent speech. We can talk about Hermann Nordung, a subject of a different recent speech by you, or William Shatner in space. What's your preference? I think I would like to talk about Love on a High Grav World still. Okay. Now, when I saw this title, my first reaction was, now, I know there's been lots of speculation about lovemaking would be like in zero gravity. Um, that, that is, and, and is this the opposite? What if we're in a high-grav world? How would you even do that? Would it be exhausting? But no, you, you, you have a slightly um, less earthy approach. Oh, there's a, there's a pun too. A less earthy oh, approach to one. this. Uh, well... I suppose I should give a little bit of background to this. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a wonderful series of science fiction novels co- called The Family D'Alembert, which were written from 1976 to 1985. I think it's about 10 or 11 in the series. And they are usually um, said they're by E.E. E. Doc Smith, who people might be mm-hmm. familiar with from the Lensman series and others, but they were actually written by Stephen Goldman, hence they're much better than all the E.E. E. Doc Smith ones, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, anyway, Just quietly, E.E. E. Doc Smith wrote a lot of hard science fiction slash space opera, lots of cowboys in space stuff, as some people <laughs> might say. And, uh, yeah, it's it's not the greatest literature in the world, but, you know, there's lots of shoot 'em ups and lots of spaceships going zoom uh, and things like that. Well, in the yeah, Family D'Alembert series, um, there's much less shooting up and lots more intergalactic espionage. So ah. the the premise is that uh, throughout the galaxy there have been a number of high-gravity worlds, in this case we're talking about a planet three times the gravity of Earth, that have been settled by humans. And in order to adapt to that kind of gravity, uh, I, I suppose a... Uh, a human body type which is very strong and stocky uh, mm-hmm. with big muscles um, mm-hmm. is developed, well, not developed, like sort of evolved, I guess, um, and the inhabitants of these high-grav planets have lightning-fast reflexes because to fall isn't just, you know, to scrape your knee or maybe break a limb uh, as it is in, in the 1G of Earth gravity. To fall is, is frequently fatal. So this makes the inhabitants of the high-grav world, De Plaine, fantastic circus performers because of these lightning reflexes. And so they create the Circus of the Galaxy, which tours all around the galaxy doing spying work for the Empire. 
uh, on as they do their rounds. And um, I've been thinking about this. I don't know. It's it's like they're kind of pot boilers. Like you could read one in an afternoon. And I'm not saying they're high mm. literature or anything, but they're very enjoyable. And I've kind of been thinking about this. Um, well, but in particular, the relationship between the circus performer and spy Yvette D'Alembert and uh, the um, in noble inhabitant of another high-grav world, uh, New Forest, that she falls in love with and marries. And he becomes a spy too, so it's quite charming. Uh, and this is where I was starting to think about the social implications of different kinds of gravity. So in the, in the novels, the high-gravity people only have relationships with other high-gravity people. There's no mixed-gravity relationships. And this partially would have to be for physical limitations. So if you're incredibly, mm -hmm. incredibly strong growing up on a high-grav world, then maybe intimate acts become risky for mm. causing injury as well. And in this, it's a little bit like, and I hate to bring this up, but I'm sorry, the analogy is valid. It's a little bit like vampires and humans having sex in the Twilight Saga. So right. there are difficulties to be overcome. <laughs> so, sorry about that. Um, no, 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 no. That's, that's fine. So thinking about the kinds of so you know we've got we've got Elon Musk talking about becoming multiplanetary species mm. and there are all kinds of problems around that as an idea but what it makes me think of is that in fact he doesn't really mean multiplanetary because it's not the fact that it's a different planet that is the thing it's the fact that it's a different gravity so we're really talking about humans becoming a multi-gravity species and this is interesting to me, I guess. So drawing on the example of the relationships between people from different gravities in the Family D'Alembert series, I think there are all kinds of, you know, social implications. So uh, if you become perfectly adapted to a higher level of gravity, then it's going to be extremely difficult for you to come to live in an environment with a much lower gravity. So we're all the time thinking what are the impacts on the human body of living in microgravity, and they're pretty considerable. Uh, well, yes, but, we see that anyone who's spent any uh, substantial time in, in orbit has to be essentially carried on a stretcher as soon as once they get back to Earth. Yeah. So this what this shows us, first of all, there's so much we don't know about uh, those transitions, we don't know. The, the crew of the International Space Station, of course, sort of do it periodically, like some people have got been up many times, so they sort of adapt and then adapt again when they come back. And, of course, as you've just pointed out, the longer the stay, they stay up there, the harder that transition is. But at a certain point, you would imagine that like if you've lived your whole life on Mars, mm. is it even possible to adapt to living in Earth without technological assistance? And well, yes, Mars's gravity using your handy chart is 0 0.3 that of Earth. Indeed. 
And the moon is about one-sixth. Jupiter is 2.6 times Earth gravity. So if you can't come home, are we really multiplanetary? Are we multiplanetary if movement between different gravities is so difficult? And are you even the same species? So if you if you can't, and we don't know about this either yet. It's too early to know. Uh, I mean, you know. And I, yet, if I can interrupt, mm. we can see even just here on Earth how quickly within one generation body forms can change. You look at societies, uh, say in East Asia, who have traditionally had a relatively low-protein diet throughout life, now have kids with a more westernised, high-protein diet, and they're all like 10 centimetres taller or, or more, and that happens immediately. Yeah, that's a great example, actually. And we also have things like um, residents um, in very high-altitude places, for example, mm-hmm. like in the city of La Paz in Bolivia. Or Nepal. Uh, and this doesn't happen immediately. It takes generations, I believe, but are adapted mm. to breathing um, air at a much lower air pressure because uh, they're so high. So, so we know that the human body is incredibly adaptable, but we don't necessarily know or understand the limits of that a lot. And the recent study I found fascinating is one which shows that uh, 4.5 times Earth gravity is uh, the highest that the human body would be able to live in long term. With the current human body, that is, though. Well, this is true. Um, and one of the expectations, or at least this is a huge topic of discussion in the space world, is is what are the sort of ethics around genetically modifying bodies to survive in different uh, planetary environments and uh, eth- ethical issues and responsibilities. And then you have to sort of, so part of the, Part of the multiplanetary species thing is our reliance on the concept of species as something straightforward, that humans is our species. And and this is, I suppose, this is a little bit like um, our earlier discussion about, you know, ontologies and epistemologies. Species kind of only exist um, by our definition because every time you're trying to get down to the nitty-gritty, all of the distinctions break down. So I guess there was a Well, yes, so I'm thinking, you know, our usual definition of species is uh, about the ability to to interbreed, that any member of the species is this like is fertile with within the species, but not without. But then horses and donkeys can crossbreed, lions and tigers can and so on. So it's a bit fuzzy at that level. And we're constantly seeing uh, uh, again uh, regular followers of, of my garbage on Twitter will know I tweet a lot about birds and there's constant rearrangement of are these three varieties of birds three different species or variants of one species. And, you know, this is being mirrored um, drawing on my sort of more archaeological um, side. So at the moment, um, you know, we used to think there were there was – 
Australopithecus, um, then there was Homo habilis and then Neanderthals got left on an evolutionary sideline and Homo sapiens and Homo sapiens sapiens, you know, won the day. But we're finding out there, that there was a much wider multitude of types of humans and human ancestors than we ever thought before and we're getting new ones all the time. And and I think there's some, you know, maybe some useful lessons for how we approach um, the future in space as well because we're likely to have a similar sort of situation. And I know someone here is going to say this is something that happened in The Expanse and I have to confess I've never watched The Expanse and I should. No, neither have I. <laughs> oh, okay. But I bet these, from what I understand, they tackle all the big issues. Um so I guess when I so my whole idea of thinking about um, love on a high grav world was I guess to bring these ideas back to what it means for you know human intimacy and those one on one relations and the social strictures around those relations because this is something wow. that I don't know this is. Everyone's obsessed. You mentioned it earlier still. Everybody's obsessed with whether people have had sex on the International Space Station and mm -hmm. what that would be like and all of those things. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yes. Um, but to bring it back to sex just for a moment, <laughs> the, the idea of, of different body forms for, for different gravity environments struck me that all, all dogs are the same species, but... A Chihuahua and a Great Dane mating is not going to end well. <laughs> and, uh, and yet, technically, by the definition of species that is generally used, that is a theoretical possibility. With technology, perhaps it might be possible. I mean, I'm thinking caesarean sections and things like that, although the resulting dog might be kind of quite a hideous crossbreed. Then to flip it back the other way, it's not that long ago on this planet that interracial marriages were one of the biggest taboos there was. Indeed still. And uh, this is something I found interesting in the Family D'Alembert series of books because it's never really sort of explained but the whole idea that you can only – you have to fall in love with someone from a world of a similar gravity to the one you came from. Uh, in the 70s um, and 80s, like on American television, uh, oh, anytime yes. you saw a person of colour, uh, they were forced to have a relationship with another person of colour. So it meant yes. that black characters had to come in pairs, sort of. Uh, and that didn't change. Um, like there's some famous interracial kisses. I think Star Trek had one in 1958 or something. But the common acceptance. 1960-something. Star something. Trek was the 1960s. And it was between Captain Kirk and uh, Lieutenant Uhura, the communications mm -hmm. officer, who is black. And that was indeed the first interracial kiss on American television ever. Wow. I have to confess I have seen bits of quite a few American soap operas, daytime soaps, which are fascinating uh -huh. cultural objects. <laughs> and uh, That's a way of putting it, yes. <laughs> and so it, I'm sure it wasn't until the 90s that it was a routine thing to, that mm. the, the characters of colour could have 
romantic interest with anyone. It didn't have to be another person of colour. So so I think there are parallels here for sure. You're absolutely spot on by drawing those parallels. And I suspect if you did a critical reading of the Family D'Alembert series, uh, that would be one of the things that, you know, would turn out that high grab worlds were kind of glosses on um, race uh, in a terrestrial context. Mm. And even now, you know, you see the looks of surprise if we see a couple together and one of them is very tall and one very short. <laughs> this this is true. In yeah. fact, that's... Um, that's I mean, it's not, it's not a taboo, <laughs> but it is seen as something a bit odd. Yeah. That, that is true. There's even, um, if people are on Twitter, there's some terrible, terrible sort of trashy promoted tweets um, for advertising purposes and what, that is one of them. One of them is actually height disparities in celebrity couples. So, uh, but these are similar things and, and coming back still to your point. But as- Tom Cruise is so short. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. And there's definitely sorry stuff. to come back, to come back to the topic. <laughs> um, I mean, these things are all kind of social values that are projected onto physical or physiological conditions, I guess, and take some of that off Earth, and you're starting to get a very complex situation and you know science fiction writers have explored many of these issues as well but um i think it's probably good uh for space ethicists to start mapping this ground now so we can kind of head off at the pass buying into all of the kind of nasty prejudices that we're quite used to on earth we don't want to see them just transposed um into different categories uh by context And finally on that topic, I'll leave this as a question because I don't think we know the answer. Will the colonists away from Earth uh, exhibit new signs of of freedom of views or will they become more puritanical in their taboos within their little community? (laughs) Yeah. Because, again, the Star Trek world was, as we go out into the universe, we become more accepting of all the different things we see. But will that actually happen? I'll leave that as a question. That is a very good question to end on. Well, finally then, Alice, I am asking everyone this one little thing about who they think will win the federal election. The Australian federal election. That's the one. I mean, do you even care? You can pass. I do care. I care a lot. But I think, well, I don't want Scotty from marketing to win, Mm. but I'm uninspired by Albo. So what do you do? And that's... And that's the thing, isn't it? That's previous guests have said, you know, it's it's time for that chap to go. But at the same time, what do we actually have on offer? And will that be enough to swing the election in his favour? Because 
it wasn't for the last bloke last time round. Uh, you know, last bloke last time round, I think had a bit more going for him in the sort of, I don't know, political and personality department. I don't know. <sighs> yeah, well... I have been quoting the betting odds because, of course, betting is the uh, the betting market is, of course, the source of all wisdom. Uh, brackets, no, it's no, it's not. People, it's not. It is gambling. It is fine if you want to gamble. I have nothing against that, but please only gamble with money that you can afford to lose. Uh, there are other people who will say it's it's an evil in its own right. I don't go quite that far, but anyway. But anyway, the markets uh, have over the last few weeks uh, indicated a minor um, advantage to Labor. They've been about a dollar eighty or a dollar eighty-five for a Labor win, or dollar ninety-five or a dollar ninety for a, a coalition win. Well, today, as we record this, Saturday the twenty-seventh, the odds have shortened Labor uh, price down to a dollar seventy. Coalition out to two dollars ten, which uh, is the the widest margin I've seen in quite some weeks. So interesting. Uh, mind you, the odds were looking fairly close last time round to the extent that before the vote had even been finally counted, they paid out on a Labor win. Really? Yeah. <laughs> the betting market said, yeah, whatever, here it is. And then it's like, oh, no, oh, no, that didn't work out. So I don't know how they resolved that. <laughs> <laughs> mm, that's quite hilarious. Uh, yeah, so perhaps the betting markets aren't <laughs> the source of all wisdom. But Dr Alice Gorman is a source, if not of all wisdom, of much wisdom. Ah, oh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for asking me still. It is always a great pleasure to throw ideas around with you and I always find something I hadn't thought of emerges in talking with you. Oh. So thank you. Well, for that's that. lovely to think of. My pleasure. <laughs> Before we wrap up completely, let me just uh, add a few final bits of information. Um, I did say that the first interracial kiss on television was on Star Trek uh, between uh, Captain Kirk and Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Uhura. Turns out that is possibly not the case. There's a, an entire Wikipedia article on the first interracial kiss uh, and apparently it's a much debated topic in many parts of the world, as as the, uh, the, the article says. Social stigma and legislation, such as anti-miscegenation laws, uh, which America had for a period, have hindered relations between people from different groups or races and the first kiss on television has been discussed in that context, in the context of social stigma. Uh, stigma. And the thing is, though, there's no real agreement on what constitutes a race, right? And that means there's no general agreement on when that first interracial kiss happened. So there are a number of claims. Have a look at the Wikipedia article to see the... Um, um, uh, the claimants, as it were, and uh, look, Star Trek is one of them. Uh, secondly, I, I miss. <laughs> I was talking about dogs before. I edited out when I said that all dogs are of the species uh, Canis Major. That's the star 
There is a star called Canis Major. The, the dogs are Canis Familiaris or Canis Lupus Familiaris, depending on whether you decide uh, that all domesticated dogs are, in fact, wolves. That's, uh, yeah, that's another one of those uh, debates about what constitutes a species, right? Uh, and finally, earlier this month, I, I have been playing the betting odds. I think it's only fair to say that earlier this month, Sportsbet, whose odds I have been quoting, were fined once again for illegal gambling advertising, uh, according to uh, you know, some... Uh, Oh, this is the notice from the court. I won't bother linking to it. Uh, But they say, just days after the race that stops a nation, by which they mean the Melbourne Cup on the first Tuesday in November, Australia's largest online wagering company, Sportsbet, has been convicted again of gambling advertising breaches following investigations by Liquor and Gaming New South Wales. That's it. (laughs) That'd be a great club, wouldn't it? Liquor and... Yeah, we get drunk and we gamble. But no, it's a government agency that uh, does the regulation. Uh, The company on the 5th of November was fined $135,000, which to Sportsbet is like... It's not even a mosquito bite. I assume there are limits on the, the size of the fines in the laws. Uh, but according to uh, Marcel Savary, who's Liquor and Gaming's compliance director, so far this year, Liquor and Gaming New South Wales uh, has started more than double the number of prosecutions compared to last year, with 119 different counts of breaching the provisions brought against 14 operators, up from 31 counts against seven operators in 2020. Exciting stuff. As I say, if you want to gamble, fine, but, like, don't, maybe. That's all the edict for now, and what a long one it was. If you would like to support this podcast, uh, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip and do the needful. The next episode, as you know, is with Alex Lee, If you want to be involved in that, get your stuff to me by Tuesday morning, the 30th of November. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.